Parliament. Well, good evening. And um, I'm very pleased to be giving my next two uh, lectures uh, in my Gresham series about specific London buildings and the impact that they had on the development of, of London um, as a whole. And um, today I'm going to start with uh, talking about, uh, in specific, uh, St. James's Palace. And it might be just worth saying a couple of words of why I've been thinking about St. James's Palace. I've been asked by the, um, by the Royal Collection to write a, a history of the building. And unlike many of the other royal palaces, with which I've been quite familiar, St. James's never had a great sort of 19th century antiquarian history of it. And um, as a consequence, I've been sort of starting from scratch, and I've been thinking a lot about uh, why St. James is important, why it's significant. So um, that's my, my starting point this evening. And um, I want to start by showing you this map, which illustrates the piece of land that I want to talk about um, tonight. Um, this is a piece of land that covers um, the whole of Westminster, Pimlico, Hyde Park, Mayfair, St. James's, and uh, Covent Garden. And you'll see from this uh, map that the whole area was divided uh, from very early on into two separate manors. Uh, there was the Manor of Westminster, which was to the east of the River Tyburn. This is the Tyburn here. This is a tributary of the Tyburn. The Tyburn comes down here into the Thames. So the, the, the uh, Manor of Westminster. And um, on the other side was the Manor of Eye. And the Manor of Eye lay between the Tyburn um, and the River Westbourne there. So these two um, separate uh, manors. And originally, the amount of land in these manors that was owned by the Crown was actually extremely small. It really comprised uh, the area round uh, Westminster Palace and a small area up here um, for the Royal Mews, where the, the Royal um, horses were, um, were, were stabled. And um, this uh, map here just really makes that point. Here is the enclave, the Royal Enclave at Westminster Palace. Um, the Mews is here, this square um, here just above uh, Charing Cross. And that was really the extent of royal um, ownership. Well, the destruction of Westminster Palace down here um, by a huge fire in 1512 um, really robbed the English monarchy of its headquarters and it left it without a residential base in Westminster. But of course, the fall of Cardinal Wolsey in 1529 and the appropriation of his Westminster mansion here, York Place, gave Henry VIII the opportunity to re-establish uh, a royal presence in Westminster. And of course, not content with uh, acquiring Wolsey's York Place, the king purchased a huge amount of private land adjoining the new Palace of Whitehall, as it became, to extend its buildings and its gardens. And this really was um, a lot of land um, in this area here that belonged to private individuals who um, had their uh, properties assessed and then, in the language of today, compulsorily purchased. Um, to the north of what became Whitehall Palace, um, there was more land bought, a square of land known as Scotland, which became Scotland Yard here. And to the north of that, um, a, a hospital, uh, the Hospital of St. Mary Runciville 
here. And as a result, and it's shown very nicely here on the, um, the map that's generally known as AGAS, uh, you can see the property that was acquired by Henry VIII to fashion his new palace. I mean, it's a very, very large area, really running from, so 10 Downing Streets here, Richmond House Terrace here, the whole of this area really more or less up to um, Charing Cross you know, itself. Now, this involved a very sort of complex series of land transactions that were actually masterminded by Thomas Cromwell. Because, of course, Thomas Cromwell started off, um, first of all, as Woolsey's land agent and then moved on to be Henry VIII's land agent. Of course, later on, he becomes his chief minister and, uh, and everything else. And it was the work of Cromwell that really gives the English monarchy this large new royal palace um, in Westminster. And in an act of parliament... In 1536, Henry VIII formally extends the legal boundaries of the old abandoned uh, palace of Westminster to cover Whitehall. And therefore, in a legal sense, the whole of this area here becomes, uh, in English law, um, the royal palace of Westminster, um, the principal palace of the realm. Now, at this point, the part of London which we now know as uh, St. James's was still open countryside. So we've been talking about the area down here. Uh, this cross here is where St. James's Palace is, and this is the area today I think we would probably call um, St. James's, south of, um, of Piccadilly. And really, because it was in um, the middle of nowhere in the Middle Ages it was chosen as the location of one of Westminster's two leper hospitals. So uh, there was a le leper hospital up here at St Giles's and a leper hospital here at St James's. Uh, the hospital, uh, its chapel, and the lodgings for its master attached to it were always, I think, to a greater or lesser extent in the orbit of Westminster Palace. Several royal clerks um, rented it um, uh, and lived in the residential parts, and in the 15th century, various bishops and royal ministers uh, lived there. By the reign of Henry VIII, there was actually a, a comfortable mansion at St. James's. And uh, the hospital church wasn't full of lepers. Don't imagine there were any lepers there in the uh, time of Henry VIII. There weren't any. It actually was a fashionable place to go and worship uh, for the richer um, residents of Westminster. It also had um, a good endowment. Um, it owned 160 acres of land in its uh, immediate environs down here, which is now St. James's Park. And so when Henry VIII bought the hospital and the land and annexed them to Whitehall, he essentially acquired for himself another house. Now, if you look at um, royal houses back into the Middle Ages, most of the larger houses had subsidiary houses to which the king could withdraw with a small number of companions and have a sort of private time. So a big house like Woodstock uh, in Oxfordshire had um, a satellite house called Langley uh, about uh, a, a half an hour's ride away where the king could retreat to. Um, Greenwich had um, a subsidiary house out at Wanstead um, and Richmond Palace had a subsidiary house at um, Hanworth. And so looking at um, St. James's in its relationship to uh, Whitehall, was this perhaps intended to be a satellite house to Whitehall? 
or given the circumstances of its creation, um, it's designed uh, essentially by Henry VIII and um, Anne Boleyn together, was this uh, uh, designed to be a new London residence for the Queen's consort of England to replace their historic residence uh, at Baynard Castle? Or was it intended to become the nursery house for the heir that Anne was to bear the king? So it would be like uh, the relationship between Greenwich and Eltham. Eltham was the place where the royal children were kept. Greenwich was the place where um, the sovereign and his consort lived. Well, um, as we shall uh, see, um, St. James's did, in fact, become the official nursery house for the royal family and the home of successive princes of Wales. And I really have no doubt that this was the original intention. And um, uh, a, few, um, a, a, a few months ago, I was, this sounds like a massive name drop, I was talking to the Queen, um, <laughs> and uh, um, I pointed out to her that it was rather remarkable that actually um, St. James's is still the um, home of the Prince of Wales, because of course Prince Charles lives in Clarence House, which is actually just a part of St. James's Palace. Well, this palace was to be a handsome uh, thing. It was basically uh, two courtyards, one here um, and one behind it here, um, of the uh, residential uh, rooms for the um, uh, the royal family and an outer court here um, leading to a gatehouse. And this is the gatehouse that still uh, survives um, at the end of St. James's Street. Um, It wasn't a very big house. It was a fraction of the size of Whitehall or Warhampton Court. Um, but, of course, it was uh, designed to be uh, the uh, house of the heir to the throne, who had a very small household. Um, and as a sort of um, child's house, if you like, it needed much less accommodation than the big houses. So Henry VIII's grand conception for Westminster embraced the sovereign's own house on the riverside, and a linked but entirely separate residence on the other side of a park for his son and heir. But Henry VIII's Westminster was not just about buildings, because in a separate process, but one that further consolidated royal power over Westminster, was the transfer of the manorial rights of the abbot of Westminster from the abbot to uh, the crown. And the crown uh, created, Henry VIII created, uh, an appointee who would be in charge of the manor of Westminster. And that person was given the title, the High Steward of Westminster. And so in order to retain control of all the land um, in Westminster around the royal palaces, uh, this High Steward post was always held by the most uh, senior people at court and quite often the most senior ministers of the crown. So the first holder of the high steward post was Sir Anthony Denny, who was Henry VIII's keeper of Westminster Palace. He was the man, basically, who was in charge of all the royal buildings in in Westminster. But under Elizabeth, uh, the stewardship was held by William Cecil, Lord Burley, who, of course, was um, her chief minister. And under James I, it was um, uh, held by Robert, Earl of Salisbury, and then, and then after that, George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham. In other words, the two most important men in um, James I's um, court, 
the men who controlled England through their prime ministership, but also, most importantly, also controlled Westminster. Uh, Lord Burley introduced into Westminster's government a board of elected local officials in 1585 in the form of a court of burgesses. And to these people, passed the responsibilities for controlling housing, sanitation, highways, and other sort of matters of local government, which these high-ranking officers of the Crown could leave behind. And in that wonderful, charming way that institutions set up uh, in the 16th century lasted forever and ever, that court of burgesses really remained the government of Westminster until 1901, which is quite extraordinary. Now, in um, 1584, there was um, an Act of Parliament concerning um, Westminster. It doesn't matter what the Act was, but its preamble very neatly and succinctly sums up the character of Westminster as it was established by the Tudors. And I'll just uh, quote from the preamble. The preamble calls Westminster the seat of royalty, the receipt of the nobles and the state of the Honourable Council, the sanctuary of all justices, the place of parliament, the show of all the nobles and ambassadors coming from foreign parts. It was the place where it all happened. And this was a place quite unlike the old medieval palace of Westminster. The old palace was extremely urban. It was tucked in, it was squeezed in between Westminster Abbey and the river and surrounded by uh, the urban ville of uh, Westminster. But the new palace was to have its own hunting parks, now known as St. James's Park, Green Park, Hyde Park, and in fact, Regent's Park. And beyond that, it was set in a vast landholding of some 3,000 acres. Now, these land transactions, the land transactions necessary to create this massive 3,000-acre landholding, were managed by uh, Thomas Cromwell. And um, he uh, essentially created a vast new demesne for the new Westminster Palace north of the Thames. So this uh, is the plan you've seen before. Uh, First of all, uh, after acquiring the land from, uh, actually it was Eton College, who actually were the, uh, owned the, uh, the, the, the leper hospital at St. James's, uh, he acquires all this land up here. Uh, this land belonged to a variety of um, uh, ecclesiastical bodies. Uh, 60 acres came from Abingdon Abbey. 42 acres came from the hospital of Burton Lazar. The Mercer's Company owned about 86 acres. Um, Westminster Abbey, over 180 acres. Eton College, I've already mentioned. And to this uh, were added various parcels of land from St. Martin in the Fields and St. Margaret's Westminster, and as I've already mentioned, from Runciville Hospital and various other private individuals. And so, essentially, the Crown acquires, uh, in the manner of Westminster, this northern part all the land south of Oxford Street, um, and uh, which is here, um, east of Bond Street, and um, west of St. Martin's Lane. Um, and added to this uh, was another parcel of land acquired from Westminster, which was the um, com- Convent Garden, here, now Covent Garden. So all this land is acquired by Henry VIII. Now, other than 
perhaps safeguarding the springs and conduit heads that provided water to the royal palaces, which were situated here, and the pipes ran down here to give water to the royal palaces. Henry VIII didn't have any real interest in keeping these lands uh, uh, in hand. And so soon after their acquisition, they were all granted out on leases of varying lengths. And this very large tenanted landholding here uh, became known as the Bailiwick of St. James. Now, the Bailiwick was not the full extent of Henry VIII's uh, acquisitions because um, as well as obtaining much but actually not quite all of the manor of Westminster, between 1531 and 1536, he also acquired most of the manor um, of Eye um, to its uh, west. And this was a very large area, covering some 1,090 acres, uh, 482 acres here, north of Piccadilly, and 608 acres here, south of Piccadilly, down to the River Thames. Now, we know um, that the way that uh, Thomas Cromwell um, acquired all these lands was by sending out um, surveyors to make detailed surveys of the land he was uh, acquiring so that the um, lawyers could be very specific about what was transferred uh, into crown hands. But unfortunately, all of those maps are now long lost. And so if we want to reconstruct the detail of what it was that Henry VIII actually acquired, we have to rely on later topographical information. And in this respect, the early history of Westminster is remarkably well uh, served. So let's start with the map we've already looked at, extremely well known. You'll all be familiar with it. This is the copper plate map, normally known as Agas, which of course shows, um, this is the far edge of the map, um, which shows the end of Westminster Abbey, um, the old Westminster Palace, Whitehall. And we just get a tiny, tiny uh, clip of the lands um, that Henry VIII acquired. This uh, area here that became St. James's Park and um, the area going up from, from Charing Cross. But if we really want to get um, a view of, of what was acquired, our starting point has to be the map that was drawn by the surveyor Richard Newcourt. And he conducted a survey of London and its suburbs in the 1640s, possibly in connection with Parliament's um, defence of the city against royalist forces. And of course, the area we're now going to look at is we're going to look at this square down here. Um, and what this map does, it gives us an incredibly good impression of Westminster at the end of the Stuart period. But to be honest with you, the details are really very problematic. His uh, depiction of the royal residence of St. James's, and I'll show you a detail of it in a moment, um, is completely made up. It's a complete and utter fantasy. Uh, we also know that he made up a whole lot of houses uh, and gardens here at this um, end, west end of St. James's Park, which never existed. And um, Whitehall and Westminster themselves, depicted here, um, can only really um, quite charitably be described as being diagrammatic. But he does show us some very important points. So, first of all, he shows us extremely clearly St. James's Park. St. James's Park uh, was walled by uh, Henry VIII 
by a wall that was 1.7 miles long, built um, quite rapidly in 1532 uh, to 3. And access to uh, this park was originally through only two places. The first was through um, a, a, a gate from Whitehall Palace itself, so that the king could leave the palace and go and see his park. And the other way was through the gatehouse that still survives from uh, the bottom of St. James's Street uh, in St. James's Palace. Because, and this is an extremely important point, St. James's Palace was inside St. James's Park. It wasn't outside it, it was inside St. James's Park. And therefore that gatehouse at the bottom of St. James's was actually not only the entrance to the palace, it was the entrance to the park itself. And this um, is an extremely um, important point because it tells us that St. James's uh, Palace is part of this uh, secure, this sort of ring of steel, this secure area that Henry VIII uh, creates in order to um, provide a secure place for his son and um, heir. Of course, he doesn't have a son and heir with, with Anne Boleyn, but eventually um, uh, J, uh, um, Edward VI um, takes up residence in um, St. James's uh, uh, Palace. Um, the park wall um, appears in this uh, equestrian portrait of Henry, Prince of Wales, when um, Henry was living in St. James's Palace. And what we can see here, and with these wonderful Prince of Wales's feathers and little um, stone or terracotta plaques in the wall, you can see it is a massive wall. This is a really serious piece of security. It was extremely difficult to get into St. James's Park unless you went in through one of the um, gates. Now, Faithorne's map um, needs to be cross-referenced with um, another map of a very similar period. It's a very remarkable thing. It's a sketch map that's in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Now, we don't know who drew this um, sheet um, showing Westminster, but um, the sheet is glued onto um, a map of uh, the city, again, dating from the early 1640s. Um, and the original map was printed, and it's got a lovely title. Uh, it was called The Countryman's or Stranger's Ready Help in Him Finding Our Streets, Lanes and Places in London. So the ready help has glued onto the end of it this bit here that shows um, St. James's. And both these maps make a very important point, and that is the extraordinary isolation of St. James's Palace. Isolated on the other side of the park, but isolated in the bailiwick of St. James's, which is actually almost completely um, un, um, uh, unbuilt up. Um, it was crossed, it was traversed by uh, a road, uh, a road that dates from the Middle Ages, um, which linked Charing Cross here uh, with the hospital and then went on to the bridge that went over the River Tyburn, the Knights Bridge, as in Knightsbridge, um, and, and went, off, um, uh, went off west. Henry VIII built another road. This uh, road, St. James's, when you next walk down it, you are walking down a road that Henry VIII laid out, and he laid it out specifically um, to um, link the gatehouse at St. James's with the uh, main um, east-west uh, road, which, of course, is now um, Piccadilly. Um, and 
If we look at a, a, a detailed view of Faithorn, uh, we can see some of the details. Now, this is the fantasy of St. James's Palace. I mean, you know, it didn't look really anything like that at all. He's just put that in very diagrammatically. But what we do see is uh, the, uh, the, the T-junction of the roads. And on the corner here, again, very diagrammatically shown, this is a tennis court. This is a tennis court built for Prince Henry of Wales and used by um, Prince Charles. And beyond it, this little house here is the house of um, Charles I's apothecary. And what isn't shown here is a walled garden, which was um, a physic garden in which were grown the uh, medicinal um, herbs, um, which uh, were prescribed to various uh, royal children who um, lived, of course, um, close by. Now, as for the rest of the land, um, all this uh, land here, of, of which there is a lot, as you see, when it was acquired, it was mostly common fields, although um, some of it had been enclosed. Um, Henry VIII fully enclosed this bit here, which is called St. James, sorry, it is this bit here, which is called St. James's Field, and he converted the arable land into med meadow land, but he didn't really have much use for it himself, and so it's all leased out. Now, as a consequence of these leases, in 1585, there's a dispute over the land boundaries between two of the tenants, and the legal proceedings resulted in this plan. And this plan essentially shows us the bailiwick of St. James. Um, down here is St. James's Palace. This is St. James's Field. Um, this is the Royal Muse, Charing Cross here. You've got um, St. Martin's Church here. This is St. Giles's up here. Uh, and what you're looking at um, are the field divisions and the boundaries um, in, St, uh, uh, in, in, in the bailiwick. So you've got um, St. Martin's Lane um, here. You've got um, Oxford Street up here. Um, and you've got quite a clear view of what this land was actually like. Now, this whole bailiwick was granted in 1617, except the Royal Mews and St. James's Park. It was granted to Prince Charles. And he um, held the, the lands in the bailiwick on a 99-year lease um, held by trustees for his benefit. And to release value from this land, uh, Prince Charles's um, trustees were permitted to grant leases on it up to uh, 31 years of duration. And the bailiwick remained Charles's when he was king. But in 1629, and this is an extremely important point, which I'll come back to later, in order to top up Henrietta Maria's uh, uh, dowry, her jointure, Charles I instructed his tr trustees to pass this bailiwick from him to the Queen's trustees for her benefit. And so all of this land ends up being uh, the property of Henrietta Maria. Now, this extraordinary level of detail that we have for the bailiwick of St. James's is replicated in another map related to another legal dispute. Oh, sorry, this is just a redrawing, a, a, a redrawing of it. I should have shown you this before because it's a little bit clearer. So you can see St. Martin's Church, there's the Mews, St. James's Field. Um, and we have these, these big fields, St. James's Field, St. Martin's Field, St. Giles's Field, and then we have the, the, the land that's rented out um, uh, by Henrietta Maria. The, the second map I wanted to show you is this one. This is um, a map, essentially, of the Manor of Eye. So St. James's Park is here. St. James's Palace is here. 
Westminster, um, Whitehall Palace is here. This is the River Thames. This is Hyde Park. Um, and this is Knight's Bridge um, across here. This is the Davis Estate, which had later become the Grosvenor Estate. Um, and uh, it was drawn by uh, lawyers in around 1665, but it's a copy of an earlier survey of the estate of 1614. And basically what it shows is the whole of the west side of Henry VIII's Westminster lands as acquired from the Abbot of Westminster. And here is a redrawing of that, so you can see it um, clearly. Just to give you your um, view again, this is St. James's Park um, here. And it shows uh, very nicely what Henry VIII got for his money in the 1530s. Uh, this is all essentially um, agricultural land, but in the middle of it down here is a little manor called the Manor of uh, a Manor of I. This is the uh, Manor House, and this was the private retreat of the um, Abbot of Westminster. Westminster Abbey's here, uh, where he could go less than a mile across here, and he could retreat from the um, uh, the Abbey in in privacy. And this manor called um, Lanite. Uh, was acquired by Henry VIII. It was a very comfortable house. He used it quite a lot. Um, he, the king and his courtiers um, would uh, retreat from uh, Whitehall, um, but under uh, Queen Elizabeth I, it was leased out, and um, eventually it was sold by James I in 1623. So down here you have a manor house. Um, the original village of I was somewhere up here to the west end of um, St. James's Park, where Buckingham Palace is. So this is the site of Buckingham Palace. And um, on this uh, site, in uh, 1609-10, to 10, James I, as part of one of his sort of slightly harebrained schemes, tried to set up um, a, a business for a domestic silk industry. And what he does is he encloses four acres of land, that is this square here, um, to create a mulberry garden. And he plants mulberry trees in it. And uh, this garden, which is very approximately on the site of the south wing of Buckingham Palace today, was quite a big investment for him. It cost nearly £1,000 to wall it in and um, plant the trees. Um, and it cost him £435 a year. Um, to, to run it, um, and every year he was spending £120 on silkworms. So um, we, have the, uh, the, we have this mulberry uh, garden here. And then uh, to the northern part here, we have the manor of Hyde, uh, bought by Henry VIII in 1536. And this was part of the hunting estate um, that the king uh, uh, established, and he built a road linking um, linking uh, the, 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 uh, the hunting park with um, uh, with St James's, so he could conveniently take carts and um, uh, and wagons there. There was also a banqueting house, um, which you can see on this map. Um, I'll show you in a second another version of it. Um, and this uh, banqueting house was used by the Tudors and the Stuarts um, after hunting expeditions in Hyde Park. Now, what I've done is I've taken these, all these historic maps and put them together for you this evening. In, uh, this is the first outing of this map ever. Um, I drew it specially for you. It puts it all together. 
So what you are looking at here is this extraordinary landholding assembled by Henry VIII. Uh, the, the, the Thames here, the, the, the Manor of Eye, uh, the Mulberry Garden, uh, St. James's Palace, um, um, St. James's Fields, this other land in the, 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 the Bailiwick, um, the Royal Mews, Scotland Yard, Whitehall Palace, and St. James's Park. And I'll come back to this uh, map on a number of occasions. But this uh, is a snapshot of the uh, massive landholding that is uh, created um, uh, by Henry VIII. And of course, at the centre of all this is St. James's Park, right at the centre. And today, I think it is still possible to get a sense of the topography of St. James's Park. Because, of course, what we're looking at here is the Thames Valley, a series of gravel terraces that come down from the sort of heights of Hampstead down to the river itself. And um, Piccadilly, which is up here, sits on one of those uh, flat gravel terraces. And as you come down from Piccadilly, come down St. James's, you come down the slope, steep slope to the next terrace. And on this terrace is built St. James's Palace. And then there's another steep terrace that you can see here in Kipps and Perspective View. You can still see it walking through St. James's Park. Another terrace that leads you down to um, the, 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 the park itself. And so that sense of um, St. James's Park being a, a, at the bottom of a series of hills is reinforced by all the watercourses. And this shows Charles II's canalisation of the watercourses. But the park, um, as a consequence, was used by the Stuarts for wildfowling, the very keen shooting duck and wild birds. Uh, they also used it for shooting driven deer. But it was also a sort of menagerie. And every time as a sort of diplomatic gift, the royal family were given some outlandish beast, it was put into St. James's Park. And so at one stage, St. James's Park um, had two elephants, four camels, um, and various other um, things uh, wandering um, around sort of at will. So you've got a bit of a surprise sometimes. Um, it had a very rural atmosphere, very deliberately. These high walls kept everybody out. You can see uh, this is, of course, um, a, a later uh, view. But even uh, in the uh, reign of William and Mary, you can see how dense the, the, um, the build-up had come. But this is still uh, this rural haven. It was a favourite place for royal picnics and for strolls. It was an intensely private estate. Charles I enforced regulations that restricted access to the park only through two gates, one up here uh, from Whitehall and the other here um, through um, St. James's. Indeed, I think part of the purpose for purchasing all this land around Westminster was to preserve the environs of this royal uh, enclave. And a series of royal proclamations, first issued in 1580, but repeated and reinforced many, many times, attempted to restrict the growth of London and the build-up of housing around Westminster. Although, famously, James I had regarded the growth of London as, and I quote, a general nuisance to the whole kingdom, uh, and on the face of it, royal, royal policy was to throttle the growth of London, Charles I, in particular, was happy to grant licences to individual cronies of his to build in its environs. And the most obvious example of this, of course, was the licence uh, given to the Earl of Bedford to uh, 
develop his residential um, estate in a Covent Garden. This was only allowed on the condition that the architecture was acceptable uh, to the king and to the um, uh, royal surveyor of works, um, Inigo Jones. So uh, although the king really wanted to control development around Westminster, he wasn't really particularly successful because there was a huge amount of unregulated building which attracted not only the sort of artisan and tradesmen, but attracted the poor and the beggarly. At the start of James I's reign, Westminster was a town of about 6,500 people, and the surrounding parishes, particularly St. Martin's, contained perhaps another 6,000. By the time the Civil War broke out, the population of the core of Westminster had increased by 250%, and the parish of St. Martin in the fields had grown by 500% and had a population of about 17,000 people. And so when you look at Faithorn's map, you can see this uh, parish here absolutely full of people, all pushing their way at the bailiwick of St. James's and, of course, Old Westminster as well, you know, bursting at the gunnels with people. Wealthy courtiers obviously wanted to live in Old Westminster uh, near the palace and the abbey, but in Charles I's reign in particular, they started to buy houses in the parish of St. Martin's. And it's been calculated, not by me, that between 1625 and 1641, more than 750 people with claims to gentility of some sort settled uh, in the parish. In fact, in 1640, there were 20 English peers, 57 knights and 51 squires, all of whom were paying rates in this parish here. This is not what Charles I wanted. His concern was to get these people, the aristocracy and the gentry, out of London to their country estates to do the job of governing the kingdom, as was their duty. But there were exceptions, because during the 1630s, Charles I gave special permission to his close friends to build houses in the orbit of the royal palaces. And uh, we can see the most important ones of these on Faithorne's map. So the first one is this house here. This is not part of the Royal Palace of St. James's. This is a private residence that is built right opposite the gate on royal land. It was built by a man called Sir Thomas Howard, who was uh, one of the horse-riding cronies of um, Henry Prince of Wales, and who became in 1614 um, master of the horse to Prince Charles. He was one of the people who went with the Duke of Buckingham and Prince Charles to Spain on his sort of madcap trip in 1622. And sometime in the 1620s, he was given permission to build a large house here opposite, um, actually, the, the, the riding house and stables of um, St. James's. Uh, another uh, house was licensed by um, uh, Charles I um, just here at the west end of St. James's Park. This is Goring House. Um, Goring, uh, George Goring, Lord Goring, um, uh, was a courtier and a soldier. But much more importantly, he was also vice-chamberlain to Henrietta Maria, and he was Henrietta Maria's master of the horse. And he spent a vast amount of money building a very magnificent house here and setting out these gardens um, um, around it again on former royal land. Uh, a third 
huge uh, mansion was uh, built in the northern part of the bailiwick, just here, uh, by Robert Sidney, the third Earl of Leicester. Uh, this was Leicester House, which of course eventually becomes uh, Leicester Square, etc. He's a leading Caroline diplomat, uh, and he bought four acres of St. Martin's uh, Fields. Um, he was actually prohibited from uh, building there by all these royal decrees, and so in August 1531, he actually acquires a physical license. It's the only license that I found for these houses. But the license entitles him, and I quote, to build a house with necessary outhouses, buildings and gardens on the condition that the fronts and all the utter walls and windows of the premises be wholly made of brick and stone, or one of them, and the forefronts to be made in that uniform sort and order as may best beautify the place. So what all this shows is that by the outbreak of the Civil War, although there'd been a lot of building in Old Westminster and the parish of St. Martin's, with the exception of a very small number of aristocratic mansions that had been licensed by the king, uh, St. James's and the lands about it were still really more or less completely um, undeveloped. So we have a few aristocratic houses, one, two, three, which is another one there, Lord Newcourt is here. Um, you have got land here that is pretty clear. And so when we look at this wonderful uh, drawing, uh, I, we think by Holler, uh, in the Royal Library, where standing sort of um, at the sort of West Fortnum and Masons is roughly, um, and we're looking down towards Westminster, Here's obviously Westminster Abbey. Here's uh, Westminster Hall. Uh, here's the Bell Tower uh, in, in, in Westminster. Uh, Whitehall Palace is sort of over here. This is St. James's Park. And here is that incredibly high wall I talked about. And you can see here very, very clearly the way that St. James's Palace is inside the park. To get into the park, you have to go in through the gatehouse here to get into the park. But all this land here, apart from the odd shed and things here, and this conduit house that is uh, channeling water down to Westminster and Whitehall, it's completely undeveloped. And there is the road running, which is now Pall Mall, running uh, from Charing Cross to Knightsbridge. And you can see it's completely um, unbuilt up. Um, but of course, the Civil War made a big impact on all of this. In 1642 and 1643, uh, Parliament ordered the fortification of London. The city of London was still walled. It was ditched, fortified with gates. But of course, Westminster was completely uh, uh, vulnerable. Um, and at first, there were some sort of standalone defences, sort of little earthwork forts, trenches, and bars and chains across the roads. But in 1643 when Parliament felt there was a real prospect that Charles I's forces could make an assault on London, it was resolved to construct a comprehensive defensive line around the city and its suburbs. And here we have this brilliant uh, uh, map. It's a sketch by Stukeley um, uh, in Corpus Christi College. Uh, and you can see uh, the way this great ring of defences was thrown round um, London. This is, of course, the city wall here, but this, and here is Westminster. Here is, is, is Kensington there. Um, and this is the St. James's area um, here. And this is 
actually not a very accurate map, but it's quite a nice one because what it does is it shows the way that through this former royal uh, land in the Manor of Eye, the defences run up here, run up around the west end of St. James's Park, um, past, past uh, Knightsbridge here, through the bailiwick of St. James's, up through St. Giles's, um, and round through the north of London. Um, and the, uh, 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 the defences were studded with these forts, and there were at least um, three of these uh, forts um, in the uh, bailiwick of, of St. James's. And um, you can get some of this in, in the street names. And Mount Street um, in Mayfair is where one of these, um, one of these uh, fortresses were. So you can get a little bit of a but actually nothing survives now. And I put it on my, my special map. Um, this is the dotted line here. This is where the line of uh, defences went. So you can see there's a very deliberate attempt here to uh, protect... Um, uh, St. James's, um, the palace, where, of course, the king's children were locked up at this point, um, uh, uh, and, and uh, Westminster from a possible royalist um, uh, uh, attack. Um, after the execution of uh, Charles I, uh, with London under military occupation, uh, all the large buildings around here were commandeered by the army. So St. James's becomes a barracks, Goring House becomes a barracks, um, up here, Leicester House, uh, right at the end of the, the, the interregnum, becomes a barracks. The whole area just becomes a huge sort of military um, area. Uh, land that was uh, royal, crown land that was kept in hand, was sold off. And so, in fact, St. James's Fields here uh, was sold uh, for nearly £2,000 to a man called Hugh Woodward. And he um, had a plan to start building houses on it. But in the 17th century, as today, there were many NIMBYs. And the NIMBYs uh, petitioned Oliver Cromwell, and Oliver Cromwell uh, issued an edict stopping uh, Mr. Woodward from building um, his houses. And it is for this reason that uh, in 1660, when Charles II returned to the throne, this area here was still um, unbuilt. Uh, it was unbuilt, I, re I think, really, for a couple of reasons. The first reason is, is because St. James's Field here, which was open land, had been, since the 13th century, um, the site of St. James's Fair, a particularly rowdy and drunken four-day booze event um, that took place on the eve of um, St. James's Day. And um, it was shut down, obviously, by Oliver Cromwell in 1651, but it was resumed in 1660. And to develop any of this area, you had to really move the fair. But the other the reason why uh, this area was undeveloped is because it was really part of this royal recreation zone. You didn't only have uh, the tennis court here, you had the Pall Mall. And the Pall Mall was this long, narrow alleyway made up of ground-up cockle shells rammed into the loam, where with a sort of croquet mallet, you whacked huge balls through hoops over a, a, a course about um, half a mile long. And so it was only really with the ability of Charles II to relocate the fair and to relocate the Pall Mall, with its 140 lime trees, um, that you could uh, start thinking about the redevelopment of um, St. James's Field. 
And um, it was in this way uh, that the uh, possibility came for St. James's to be built over. At the Restoration, all Henrietta Maria's lands were restored to her. So once again, in 1660, Henrietta Maria owns the bailiwick of St. James's. And she grants a major part of the bailiwick to Henry German, Earl of St. Albans. Now, Henry German had entered Henrietta Maria's household in 1627, and he'd risen to be her favourite, so much so that there was sort of gossip about their relationship. But he fought with the king during the Civil War and then went into exile uh, with Henrietta Maria as her Lord Chamberlain. And through the whole of the interregnum, he was her absolute right-hand man. And even rumours that after the king's death that they'd, they'd got married. I mean, it's not true, but they were very, very close. And during this time uh, of exile, St Albans had raised £647,416 for the royalist cause, partially to give money to the various failed attempts at restoration, but also to maintain her household. We're talking about something between 20 and 25 million pounds in modern day money. And in the process, he had incurred personally vast debts. And so at the restoration, Henrietta Maria and Charles II owed St. German, uh, owed Henry German um, a, a, a huge um, a debt. And he was granted a huge number of um, uh, uh, properties. He was given a big chunk of Virginia in America, but he also got leases of the former royal houses of Byfleet, of Oaklands, uh, uh, and uh, crucially, he was given the bailiwick of St. James's in Westminster. And it was as the owner of this land that German effectively founded the West End that we know today. And as he did so, he effectively brought into reality the dream that Charles I had had. The dream of creating an aristocratic quarter that complemented the royal estate of Westminster. St Albans explicitly stated that his new houses were for, and I quote, the conveniency of the nobility and the gentry who were to attend upon his majesty's person and in parliament. The centrepiece was, of course, St. James's Square, based on the uh, architecture laid out by St. James's, uh, uh, by, by Inigo Jones's, uh, Jones at um, uh, Covent Garden. Um, and of course, St. Al- St. Albans and Inigo Jones had known each other very well. Uh, and he also uh, commissioned Christopher Wren, who he also knew very well and who he had shown around um, Paris um, to build uh, St. James's um, church. Uh, um, and so this is um, a, a map or a chart drawn by Jonas Moore around um, 1662, which was originally intended to show the docks. The map goes right over here. But this bit here shows St. James's immediately at the Restoration. And you can see here, this is the, the Pall Mall, you can see here uh, the, the, the land which um, uh, St Albans begins to develop in the open fields. And the inhabitants that he attracts were indeed the great and the good of the Restoration. You won't be able to read any of the names on this plan, 
But these are the plots in St. James's Square, and this is an aristocratic quarter. It remains an aristocratic quarter for centuries after it's founded. Before 1675, already in residence, was Lord Bellasis, the Earl of Arlington, Viscount Halifax, Thomas German, his, his son, and the French ambassador, Monsieur Coutin. Uh, and as uh, the square was developed, so also, um, here's the square, um, were uh, developed houses along uh, the other side of Pall Mall. And these houses were also very much occupied by uh, the aristocracy. But they, of course, were built up against this extremely high park wall that we've met before. And what's interesting about these houses is that, as you see, all of them have these quite big gardens that go to the back of the walls, and almost every single one of these houses built uh, what we know as a mount. In other words, a very large pile of earth on which they could stand and look over the wall and see what is going on in the royal gardens. Um, so the creme de la creme of rest- restoration society, uh, including famously the king's mistress, Nell Gwynne, who lives here, um, had these uh, houses which were deliberately trying to get themselves as close as possible to the royal family. And of course, at the same time, what happens is um, that, uh, we've seen this one before, that uh, James, uh, Duke of York, Uh, the heir to the throne, uh, takes up residence in St. James's uh, uh, palace. This was no sort of dingy backwater. This was the centre of another glittering court. And the residents of the new West End now lived in its bright light and reflected its bright light uh, back at it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's often said not least by me, that in the development of London, the crown played a very slim role. But I think in the birth of the West End, we can see that really from the time of Henry VIII, monarchs were absolutely determined that they controlled the land around Westminster. This was for security, and the Civil War makes a very clear point about that. It was for hygiene, It was for law and order. But I think most importantly of all, it was for dignity. Monarchs from Henry VIII to Charles II wanted to dignify their royal palace by an aristocratic quarter that uh, surrounded it. And I think it is perhaps a supreme irony that in the end, it was the civil war that gave the opportunity for this to happen, thus bringing a royal dream finally to life. Thank you very much.